Father, I, I, we come before you this morning, uh, you know, just celebrating who you are, but also being reminded that we need to know you more. Uh, we, we want your heart more. We want to see you for who you are, uh, that, you're, that we even get to sing about your love. But Father, I pray that it would just soak in this morning. Open our hearts by your spirit to hear from you. And Father, let, let down our walls, the walls in our hearts. Um, just draw us to yourself this morning, we pray. In your name, amen. So, what if? What if I don't do well in college? Will I get the job I want? What if I have to change majors and it costs money? It costs more money than I'm already spending. What if I get to college and, and no one likes me? What if it feels just like high school? What if I don't meet that right person to marry? Or will I still have a relationship with Jesus when I leave high school? If I stand up on grad Sunday and mess up, what if I mess up what I'm going to say? Now, for, for graduates, for you guys, these kinds of questions and more can be rolling around in, in your hearts and minds, especially as you're looking ahead into a new season. But I, I want to broaden it out this morning and recognize just because most of us in this room aren't graduating high school, it doesn't mean that there aren't similar questions at work within us. For instance, here's, here's some similar questions that might, it might sound for you as a teenager. What if my parents find out I've been living a lie? That who I am with them, there's who I am with them, and then there's the real me. Or, or what if I'm not in the in crowd at school? My friends stick by if they discover how things really are at home. Will my friends still want to be around me if they discover I'm a follower of Jesus? Will they think I or my family are unsafe to be around because we're Christians? Or will I look dumb in class because I give the wrong answer? Or what about questions like this for us as adults? What will people think if I arrive late to church on Sunday? Or what if I rarely go to church? What if other people figure out how much of a mess I really am? How will they see me? How will they react to me? What if my kids' life are a mess? Will the people at church reject me? What if I try really hard, but I, I don't, and I just can't meet this other person's expectations? Or that's my, my, my spouse, my boss, my coworker, a, a friend. What if I'm just a failure at life? What if I'm not in the right group of friends as an adult? Or what if I say the wrong thing and, uh, and offend somebody? See, regardless of we, if we like to admit it or not, if we have a pulse, we all to one degree or another wrestle with questions like these. Not only in transitions into new seasons of life, just like transitioning from life in high school to beyond high school, but also in the ins and outs of daily life. And how we wrestle with these questions and even try to answer them has a huge impact on our relationship with Jesus and with others. 
and recognize some of the ways that we deal with these questions can seem life-giving, but can actually become traps that feed into the common beliefs and fears that are at the roots behind the questions altogether. That can be true regardless of if we are high school graduates or not. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to start by cracking open these questions and considering what is at work below the surface. And then we're going to look at how this affects our relationship with Jesus, as well as the solution that God himself offers, where real freedom comes from surrounding the questions that we're going to wrestle with this morning. And then we're going to close by considering where, where do we, graduates, students, young adults, parents, grandparents, where do we go from here? So as a launching point, we're going to turn to Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Now, if you have your Bibles, whether that's on your phone or a paper Bible, I would encourage you to turn there and look at what's going on. And so here's, here's a little bit of a brief background of what's happening as we jump into this. Paul, an apostle, a follower of Jesus, is writing this letter to a church as a reminder and warning with regards to beliefs that are being promoted and brought into these followers of Jesus, this church. So Paul, writing, wanting to present them mature in Christ, as he stated just a couple of sentences earlier in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, writes to address an important issue. Here's what he writes as he begins to jump into this conversation. Here's what it says. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition and according to the, and there's two options here, elemental spirits or elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now here, as we listen, in these two short, or sorry, in these few short verses, we discover a big difference between what's happening in verses 6 and 7 and what's happening in verse 8. Now, to help us see this and catch this, we're actually going to visually split these up on the screen into two different columns just so we can see what's happening here. On the one side, there's, there's an encouragement. There, there's a, a positive side, and here is the main thing that starts it all. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, now catch this. There's a, Paul's actually putting an equal sign in here a little bit. And he's saying that walking with Jesus is done the same as we have received Christ. Now, that's a huge statement, which not only does this Bible spend a lot of time unpacking, but it's a huge issue of, everyday, of what everyday life with Jesus really looks like. And I got to recognize, you know, we're only going to be able to touch on a sliver of this, which is such a huge deal. But Paul makes that big statement. Okay, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then, he, after making that statement, he gives a couple of descriptions of the results of a life with Jesus. Okay, and those are, I encourage you to look at those and hopefully you have those in front of you. But there's another column here. There's, there's some warnings here, too, aren't there? See, if in the other column, there's another big statement 
that, that Paul makes, and he says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by. And, and then there's these things listed, philosophy and empty deceit, human tradition, elementary principles of the world. And then Paul adds, and not according to Christ. Paul's driving home that there is a huge gap between these two categories, showing that this is not only the opposite of how we received Christ, but it's the opposite of walking in him. Now, graduates, if you're listening close or others of us, we might be going this. You might, wait, you might be going, like, wait, wait, wait. Is the Bible saying that philosophy is evil? Uh, should I steer clear of majoring that or steer clear of others who are majoring in that when I get to college? And some of you here who are maybe majored in philosophy in the room might be wondering, like, uh, is he going there? Here's what I'm going to say. That is not the point. See, philosophy is a wonderful thing. It causes people to ask great and important questions of life. And it's so important to us. But what Paul is pursuing here is a deeper and much broader-ranging issue. See, he, he touches not just on philosophy, but on human tradition and on the elementary principles of the world. And we could think of this another way of saying something like this, how we believe the world should work. And if we were to look for a common thread between these things, what do we see? See, all these things offer a perspective of how we think the world ought to work. How we've learned from experience how the world works. What we believe is ultimately best, and even what we think God and our relationship with him should be like. And here's how we get there, and here's how this starts. We start with thinking about ourselves using our reason and experience, and as a result, we end up with a God and a world that operates a lot like what we expect it to be like, and a lot more like us than who God really is and how he really works. And here's the crazy thing. Without God drawing us to see him for who he is, we actually want the world and our relationship with God to work this way. We want it to work like we work. Now, by way of example, well, let's pull some of these questions together that we started with. Things like, what if I don't do well enough at college? Or, or what if no one in college likes me? What if I'm not in that in crowd? What if I look dumb if I give the wrong answer? What if I try really hard and I just can't meet that other person's expectations? What if, I, what if other people figure out just how much of a mess I really am? How will they see me? How will they react to me? If we listen close to those questions, what do they have in common? So if we pause for a second and let them sink in, I think we might find this, or we might even feel this. Fear. There's a fear. And it's a fear that at the very heart of it is asking questions like this. Who will love me and accept me? Am I even worth being loved and accepted? 
And these questions have to be answered. They are at the very core of our being. So here's the big question for us. How do we answer these questions? And do our lives match or maybe expose a contradiction between what we say we believe and what, what we really believe deep down? Now, see, here's some of the main ways that we as people look to answer the question of who will love me and accept me? Am I worth being loved and accepted? We do two things. We look to our own performance and other people's opinions of us. We're constantly asking a question like this. How well am I doing at, and you fill in the blank. It can be college. It can be my career. It can be my job. It could be my art. It could be, fill in the blank there. And we can either go an and or. We can either say or this, or maybe it's both. What does my, and we fill in the blank, boyfriend, girlfriend, my boss, my professor, my family, my classmates, what do they think of me? And when the answer to these questions is great, we're doing great. When the answer is awful, we'll feel utterly worthless, valueless, and undeserving of love. So to prevent feeling this way, we work really hard to never fail ourselves or others. Because then we, we prove to ourselves, we prove ourselves worthy of love and acceptance. So maybe not to everybody else, but at least at times we feel like we prove it to ourselves. And our accomplishments are failures. Others' opinions, all of them serve to reinforce in us how worthy of love and acceptance we feel like we are or we are not. And then when we fail, which we all do, right? We all do. We just work harder at it next time. We just work harder at it. Or we can do this. We just never try because we know we're going to fail anyway, so why not just own it? Why not just stay there? And here's a picture of what this can look like. So at the top it says, did I meet expectations? My own, others, did I meet expectations? If the answer is yes, everything is awesome. And then we go on and say, okay, if everything's awesome, I want it to stay this way. In, in other words, don't mess it up. Life is going great. I'm doing awesome. Don't mess it up, which goes back to the question of did I meet expectations? But what happens if suddenly the answer is no? Did I meet expectations? No. Well, then everything isn't awesome. Everything is awful. And then what do we do? I mustn't mess it up. I try harder next time. Or I go into the, eh, why bother? And we live in this cycle going on in the question of what did I do, what did I not do? Did I meet expectations, did I not meet expectations? Did I live this, did I do this well, did I not? Graduates, church family, here's the reality. This is all the world has to offer a life rooted in what we do or do not do. It's a law of conditional living. Do this, don't do this. Be who you decide to be, don't let anybody else decide for you. It's rooted in ourselves, in human traditions, and the elementary principles of the world, because it's how we live, it's how we function, it's at the heart of us. But it's not according 
to Christ. It's not according to Christ. And it can come out and it can sound a little bit like this. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. Be successful. Live for the moment. You determine who you are. And here's some ways for you to figure out if you're doing well that meets expectations. You do you. Live, live for whatever makes you happy. But here's where things get challenging for us. Our beliefs about how the world works, through experience, through what we hear from others, and most especially from what flows naturally out of our hearts, convinces us that God must operate this way too. See, we subtly expect his heart, his motives, the things that he cares about more, he cares more about like how we would function if we were God. Like The view is, if we were God, what would we do? And it looks more like us than who God reveals himself to truly be. So we buy into this and we respond to him living out of our own expectations of what a relationship with God should, should be like, how it should work, what we think it should be like, rather than living from the life that God gives and how life with him does work. And again, why do we do this? It's because it's how we work. See, this is our common problem. It's the default mode of how we operate. So what is the solution? What is the solution? How do we find hope, rest, and freedom from all of this? We're going to jump passages here. We're going to turn to Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30 and see what Jesus himself reveals. And he starts with a prayer and then offers us exactly what we need. Here's what he says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, he's praying here, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the, father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and or we could put the word humble, here is another translation of that, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus, starting with his prayer, He's actually setting up a tension. And it's a tension between those who have had something hidden from them and those who have had something revealed to them. And verse 25 says, it's the wise and understanding from whom this is hidden. Much like what's happening in Colossians, these are likely people starting from human experience and expectations and trying to figure out and understand how God works. And as a result, how life should work. But on the other hand, we have little children. Those who receive. Those who hear. And they're the ones who have had these things revealed to them. See, Jesus, even as he's praying, he, he's setting up that how we expect life to work is so 
upside down at times, so backwards at times. And it's not who we would expect to be figuring it out that's, that's seeing this. It's people like little kids, those who are listening to what's revealed to them. So it leaves us with a question, right? What's being revealed and what's being hidden? And we don't know until we keep reading on to verse 27. It says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except, or sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here's the answer to what's revealed and what's hidden. What God the Father is like. Jesus is saying the wise, the understanding, those who think they know how God is supposed to work, they've figured it out on their own, they don't, they don't get it. It's only those who receive from Jesus, those who have had their hearts opened by the Spirit, who get what the Father is like. In other words, Jesus is setting up something really important. He is about to reveal not only what he is like, but what God the Father is like too. And then starting in verse 27, he does just that with an invitation. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now let's pause there for a moment. Why would Jesus make this statement? I mean, didn't he just set up, he's about to address what he and the Father are like? It kind of seems like Jesus just took a left turn here. Except, what happens when we live a life based on our accomplishments or our failures, on others' opinions, all to prove ourselves worthy of love and acceptance, both in God's eyes and others? What happens? We labor. We get weighed down, especially when life isn't working the way we want it to. And the cycle that we live in kills us. And it kills a relationship with God too. And then Jesus goes on and he reveals something that is so easy to miss and really hard to accept. He says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now here's where I think we need to be honest. If you are like me, when you hear this, what, what do we naturally focus on? See, here, here's what I often hear, me myself, when I read this. It sounds a little bit like this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. And when I do this, do you know what I even expose myself. I can be so focused on accomplishments or failure, wanting to work hard to please God because I love him, that I can actually miss who he is revealing himself to be. See, Jesus just spent all this time building up to the statement by talking about what is revealed and what is hidden, all to prepare us for him exposing his very heart to us. See, it's not a statement about an attribute of who he is. 
like one piece of a big puzzle, but instead a statement of who he is at the deepest part. This is what flows out of the core of who he is most naturally. And we miss it. Do you know why? It's because it's so different from what we expect God to be like that our natural reaction is these words almost go invisible on the page. How could the God of the entire universe actually be gentle, actually be humble at the very core of who he is? See, it's a simple question, but if we pause on it for a moment, it creates a host of questions, which, man, we won't have time to explore all of them this morning, because guess what? The Bible spends the whole time exploring it. But I, I want to mention at least two realities that we need to recognize, especially because Jesus brought one of them up here in verse 27. Here's one reality. We're, we're somewhat okay with saying that Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. Like, we see that through the Bible. We see that in action. But it can be a lot harder to accept that God the Father is also gentle and humble in heart. Yet, in verse 27, we just read that Jesus is the one who is intentionally revealing what the Father is like two verses before this statement. Or we could jump to, to John 14, 9, where Jesus says this to one of his disciples. He was asked the question, show us the Father, and, he's, and Jesus replies with this. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is making a statement about the core of who he is, but he's also making a statement about the core of who the Father is. Now here's the second reality. Just because Jesus is gentle and humble in heart does not mean that he or the Father are fluffy, boundaryless pushovers. And here, here are two connected reminders. See, in John 5, 22, Jesus mentions something about himself. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Which means that the one who is gentle and humble in heart is also the judge of us. And he can judge us best, both because of the heart of who he is, but also because he fully knows what life like us is. Because Not just in some theoretical, abstract, out there sense, but because he lived it. Here's the second reminder. This one actually is from the Old Testament. It's from Lamentations 3, 31, or 31 through 33. And Lamentations, it's a book that seems like it's filled of God's wrath and judgment on a disobedient people. But listen to what it says about God's heart, the heart of the Father. It says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever. You know, the, the people, there is, their hard stuff coming their way. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And here's the kicker. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. 
And with those two realities in mind, as we have that as a foundation, let's spend a little bit of time simply exposing the differences that Jesus reveals between himself, who God is, and who we are without him, where, where we start. And, and then we'll begin to bring all the pieces together, both in terms of how this impacts us as grads, as well as all of us as we live out everyday life. So let's put these up on, the, on two different columns up on the screen, and we're going to bounce back and forth between them. And I want to go intentionally slow just because we, myself included, need to soak in this. We need to soak in the difference, and we need to soak in who Jesus is. So here's where we start. We are selfish. You see it in action, right? He is selfless. We are proud, putting ourselves on the top of everything. He is humble, serves, and even dies for us. We are harsh with ourselves and others. He is gentle. We cut others down. He is here to heal and save. We run away from those who are broken and different. The sinners, those people, even people. He runs to them. We look on actions, do's and don'ts, outward appearances. He looks on the heart. We can be joyless. He is joyful. We make others prove themselves worthy of our love. He loves and dies for those who have proven themselves unworthy. We are dead towards him, wanting nothing to do with him. He pursues us and offers us life and his very self. We give love for what we get out of it. He loves because it's who he is. Our hearts are desperately wicked. His is gentle and lowly, or gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And to be honest, I don't want to stop there. We need to keep going with that. We need to keep seeing him, see his heart for who he is. But I got to keep going. We need to return to the questions we started with. See, we recognize that there's a constant fear that we're looking for an answer to, an answer that is different than the world offers. And it's wrestling with that constant fear of not being accepted, not being worthy, not being loved, not living up to expectations of ourselves and others the fear that causes us to either madly chase after whatever we can do in order to control and get rid of that feeling, or that causes us to give up and go, why even try? Now, you might also go after listening to those differences between us and Jesus. You might say, wait a minute, didn't we just say we're joyless, we're demanding, dead, and desperately wicked? Yes. Without Jesus, that is absolutely who we are. But God 
He's not. And this God, who we so often and so quickly try to make into our image, once we see his character and who he really is, that he's not only not in our image, but he is so not like us that at times his heart is the exact opposite of who we are. When we see that, we see that he truly is the answer and the solution to our fears. We are not the answer to our fear, nor is anything we can do or other people. He is, and he offers us himself. And we've got to go, why? It's because it's the natural flow of who he is. It's God himself, and he offers himself, his heart, his life, his love to us willingly. Let me ask you a question. What just happened in your heart? What just happened in my heart when we soaked in the vast difference between Jesus, between God and us? See, I think when we pause and remember Jesus' heart towards us, he both breaks and heals us. And some of us will see who we are and we're going to hate it. We'll make excuses, we'll hide from it, we'll deny that this is who we are. And other of us, when we see Jesus our hearts will break and want nothing more than to run to him and be held in his arms. And Jesus not only invites us to, he wants us to, regardless of if we're a follower of Jesus or not. Jesus invites us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus knows the natural tendencies of our hearts. He knows we believe we have to prove ourselves worthy of his love, just like he knows that we often expect him to be just like us, just with God-like superpowers and perfection, instead of seeing him for who he really is. Except that's not how he works. He loves us, even though we have clearly proven we don't deserve it. That's why John 3.16 is so powerful, a reminder of why Jesus came. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And if you're here this morning and you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus, or you want to give him your heart and life, come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Ron, the elders, somebody who you even might have come with this morning. We would be overjoyed to start you on the adventure of knowing and loving Jesus. But what if we already have a relationship with Jesus? Does this still matter to us? Does it affect my life as a grad, as a teen, as a parent, a grandparent, a young adult? Is this just a one-time invitation that Jesus is just giving those you know, who don't have a relationship with him yet to, to start one? Or is this an all-of-life kind of thing? And might it be something to do with what Paul says when he writes later in Colossians 2.6, which we started by looking at this morning. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. See, 
here is the invitation for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus. So we recognize when we enter into a relationship with him, we receive him by faith. And as the spirit works in our hearts to reveal the goodness and love of God, he reveals it to us. And we see who we are and we see the reality that we cannot prove ourselves worthy of God's love, affection, and intention. So we come to him like little kids and simply receive. And once we do, here's the challenge, right? Our sin nature, the world, the devil, all work to convince us once again that God, yeah, he's really just like us. He's really just like us. And we slip into believing that, yes, we are loved and saved, but we have to show ourselves as truly lovable and valuable to God. And while we might not say it in words, and we might deny it flat out if we were asked, we can still, in the deep corners of our lives and our hearts, reveal that we're trying to prove ourselves worthy to God for his attention and for the love that he's given to us, to contribute to it in some way. Just like we try to build our lives on how we perform in work or school or on the opinions of others around us. Now let me ask a quick question. How would you react, and this is especially for you as parents, how would you react one day if your kid came to you and they believe that your love and acceptance of them is entirely based on what they did at school or baseball or the job they did or did not get? My hope is it would break your heart. And what's more, imagine, what if our kids were utterly convinced that this is the only kind of relationship that we want to have with them, and it's not true? See, wouldn't this keep them from knowing just how much we love them and what kind of relationship we want to have with them? The same thing happens when we live this way in our relationship with God. His heart is breaking towards us. He is offering us a different kind of relationship. And naturally, in just our, our sin nature, we keep basing our relationship with him in the wrong things. Now, not too long ago, I realized my son already struggles with wanting to live up to expectations and, and perform perfectly. And I realized I, I, I feed into that. I can feed into that. And when I did, it broke my heart. And, and catch this, he's four. And I had to apologize to him. Because the last thing I want for him is to think that his worth to me and to God is based on his performance. I love him because he's my kid. What about God the Father? Isn't his love so much greater? See, my love for my son, while great, it's still a poor image. See, God, he loves us because it's who he is. And here's the question for all of us. Do we really trust God's heart towards us? Are we living, living into and encouraging and founding our lives on what we do or do not do? on our own picture or others or of who we should or should not be? Is it according to the philosophy and principles of the world or according to Christ? In other words, do we really trust the character and promises of God? Do we know his heart? Or are we buying into the lie that he works like we do apart from him? Now, worship team can come on up here. But 
I want to speak again to you, you as graduates, just for a moment, but also all of us as well. Graduates, there will be a lot of pictures of God, of life, and how the world works that is going to be offered to you in new and exciting ways. And, and, and catch this, it really is the reality that it, it just looks different, but it's the same that's offered to all of us. And so how are you holding on to, how are you seeing Jesus for who he is? Let that be the thing that holds you as you go forward. Let him be your identity. And just receive him. Let him pour into you, pour his love into you. See, there is a grand adventure ahead. And Jesus wants you to step into it with him. And as you step into it, he wants to reassure you over and over and over again that who you are, your identity, is one who is loved by him. So will you, will, will we open ourselves up to him? Will we let him love us? When, when life's at its best, will we let him celebrate with us? Will we let him reveal who we are? Will we let him into our hearts, listen to him as he speaks through his word and in prayer, through his family and all of it by the Spirit? Will we let him take us to the best and perhaps even some of the scariest things for all of us to the kind of life that he wants with him. Exciting, scary, joyful, but filled with his love and presence. Will we let him show us who he is each and every day? And if our answer is yes, here's the final application. Watch and celebrate what God does in our hearts and our lives, not only by increasingly being captured by him, but also by being filled with intentional moments as we live on adventure with Jesus, inviting others to know, love, and be captured by him too. Grads, family, this is at the heart of who we are. Soak in it, soak in Jesus.